I'm gonna take a little walk. With the boogeyman. I'm scared. There's nothing to be scared of. Are you sure? How? I killed him. You can't kill the boogeyman. And tonight is the night that we came home. Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made or the Essential Films. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Mark Espinosa. How are you doing today? Pretty good, man. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Uh, it is uh, com- coming up here on the end of October. And, uh, you know, Halloween is coming up. And uh, what better movie to watch for our Halloween episode than... Halloween itself, from nineteen seventy eight. Exactly. Oh, oh, uh, whoa, 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 whoa! I, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Halloween came out in two thousand seven. Did, did I, did I just watch the wrong one? Well, if you watch that version, this is going to be an interesting podcast. <laughs> By the way, folks, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, don't let's not we're not talking that other one i've actually never watched it Uh, i have um really i I have the uh the big box set uh with all the films in it but i've actually never watched it because this its reputation is so bad i've i just i've never felt the need to watch it It, it's sitting there like on my shelf and i'll watch it eventually but i just eh, i have no there's nothing calling me to watch it this this is the most i'll say about that film because we're, we're not talking about that we're talking about the original um, it gets a lot of undue flack, in my opinion, but there are a lot of stupid changes that were made to it. But it is Rob Zombie's vision, in a way. So, I mean, I got to give credit where credit is due. It was, it was entertaining, and I, I saw what he tried to do. He tried to live up to the spirit of the original, but, I mean, nothing's going to beat the original, as we're going to talk about momentarily. You know, Rob Zombie is kind of an interesting case, because he, uh, he, he's... He's an interesting filmmaker in the sense that he doesn't always make good movies, but his movies are definitely have his stamp on them. Like, he is kind of an auteur. It might not be quality, but it's always him, you know? So you kind of have to respect that a little bit. 
Exactly, exactly. And that's why I can't really like everybody say, "Oh, this is such an abomination of a film." Which I mean, to those purists that that like love the original Halloween, yeah, of course it's going to be like an abortion to them. But um, you got to give credit where credit is due. Like I said, and you know, he did try to put his own spin on. It. He tried to add like different elements, you know. But then at the same time, like for example, he kind of goes into more of Michael Myers's background as to why he is, why he is, the way he is, but. I mean, as John Carpenter has said when asked about the film, like, who cares about why Michael Myers is the way he is? He's just, he's just Michael Myers, you know. So who, we don't, we don't care about that aspect. But I, I did see, I did like that he tried to kind of give it that aspect and kind of go in a different direction. And depending on your taste, you know, you either like that or you hate that. So I mean, I guess I can't really hate on it as other people do. I mean, it is what it is at that point. Yeah, I, I I've never watched it. I'll probably get around to watching it at some point. Um, the um, but yeah, Rob Zombie's uh, contribution to the Halloween uh, um, franchise is 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 disputed or controversial to say the least. Um, I will say this though, I I really do enjoy the Devil's Rejects. I think that's a pretty good movie. You know, I haven't seen that one yet. Devil's Rejects is pretty good. It's a sequel to House of One Thousand Corpses, which is not great. But Devil's Rejects is actually pretty good. I will say that. I'll All give right. him that. I'll give him that one. And yeah. I think he, I think he directed a, a sequence in Grindhouse, the uh, one of the trailers. I think it was the Werewolf Women one. Werewolf Women of the SS. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think that was his. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So what we're 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 actually here to talk about. We're not here to talk about Werewolf Women of the SS. We're here to talk about the original 1978 John Carpenter uh, film Halloween, the film that. Probably put him on the map uh, nation on a nationwide scale. Now he had done other movies before this. But right. This is probably his his first early big success. Uh, to go into the credit, credits here, uh, the movie was directed and written by uh, John Carpenter. The screenplay he co-wrote the screenplay with Deborah Hill, who also produced the film. Um, and the movie stars Donald Pleasance, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Nick Castle, uh, P.J. Souls, and Nancy Keys, among other people. Um, the cinematography was by Dean Kundi, and it was released. Uh, it's very timely, actually, um, because we are recording this on the day of its 38th anniversary. On October 25th, 1978, uh, it was it was released in theaters. All right. Uh, this is actually – I did not actually plan this. It just happened to, to be the day we recorded it, but <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> It, uh, it it never won any real awards because uh, being a slasher film in the seventies that wouldn't wouldn't have been considered for anything really. Uh, it has you know been recognized uh, you know retro retroactively in in, in recent years. It it ranked in the AFI's uh, one hundred years one hundred thrills uh, TV show. I think it was in number sixty four out of a hundred. Uh, I believe Psycho was number one on that list. Uh, it was also number 14 on Bravo's uh, 100 Scariest Movie Moments. I've never watched that, but apparently it's only a number 14. Um, and in 2006, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry uh, and by the Library of Congress as a culturally, historically, or, eth- or aesthetically significant film. So... Way to go. It's culturally significant. And I think it will be. Uh, we'll get to that, some of that stuff uh, a little later as to why, why we would be. And also, it, it's been involved in many countdowns on my own uh, website, the Essential Films Podcast, uh, com. Um But we'll get to that a little later, too, at the end of the show. Uh, a quick plot here before we get into the film. Uh, it's 
Halloween night in 1963, six-year-old Michael Myers stabbed his sister to death. After sitting in a mental hospital for 15 years, Michael Myers escapes and returns to Haddonfield to kill. And that is the basic plot. Uh, it is, if you've seen one slasher movie, you've probably seen this one as far as the plot goes. It's one guy going around killing teenagers. Uh, but what is what sets this film apart is that this film did it first. Um, now, when did you experience the original version of Halloween? So, actually, I have to admit that the first Halloween film that I saw was Halloween H2O. Which, and it's because of that, seeing that film for the first time, I actually saw it in theaters, which was made it interesting. I, I kind of snuck in, which that's a whole other story for another day. I used to sneak into a lot of movies back in the day. But um, after seeing that film, that's when I decided to kind of go back and start watching some of these Halloween films. The uh, the first one that I really wanted to watch still, but I was too young to watch it when it came out because all my friends had, wa- had seen it, you know, or had claimed to have seen it, you know, because kids lie. As you said many times on Force Respected and probably on this show too. Um, it was uh, Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. Like everybody was making a big deal out of it. At least the third graders in my class were making a big deal out of it. So, you know, oh, it's so scary. You have to see this movie. You know, whether they've seen it or not is a whole other issue. But um, after that, then I think H2O was the next one. And by then, you know, I was a little older and I had gotten to see that in theaters on its first release. And then because of that one, I decided to go back and watch Halloween, Halloween 2 and all those other ones. And that had to be around, let's see, like maybe 99, 2000, around that time. It had to have been. That was the first time I actually went back and watched Halloween because I actually asked my mother to kind of track it down. And we um, we all watched it together because she had... It had been the first time she had seen it in a long time when we watched it together. It was the first time I was watching it. And I remember it. I remember it being scary, but I remember it like, I, you know, you kind of build this up in your head. You're thinking, oh, it's going to be like not only scary, but it's going to be like, you know, gory and bloody. And you got none of that, which is a, a big ask that we're going to talk about later on in this film. And later on on the show, I should say that there was all, pretty much no gore, no almost no blood. You know, it was. It lacked any of that, but it still kept that fear factor, that suspense factor, and it still scared the bejesus out of you. Yep, uh, absolutely. And we are going to talk a little bit about uh, about that blood and gore factor, or lack of, a little bit later. Uh, the first time I experienced Halloween, uh, I don't remember the exact age I was. I was young, though. I was maybe 9 or 10 years old, um, and I had gotten into, uh, you know... For whatever reason, I don't know why, uh, it's one of those kid things, you know, some kids are into dinosaurs, some kids are into baseball cards, some kids are into, you know, whatever. For whatever reason, there was this period of my time of time in my youth where I got into horror movies and, like, monsters. And, because I, I remember it very clearly. Did you, did you ever have book fairs when you were a kid in your school? Oh, yes, I did. So, there was Yes, a, I did. So, we had a book fair, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a book fair in our school and a book caught my attention. It was called, uh, oh man, I can't remember the name of it, but it was basically a, a, a very you know a kids book for like ten year olds or whatever. And it was the it was basically something like famous movie monsters or something. And it caught my attention, so I bought the book. And you know, it went through like a very kind of brief history of, of horror movies. Uh, uh, you know, in a kid in a kid friendly way. They talked. They focused really heavily on the Universal monsters uh, in that book. I remember that very clearly. 
Um, so for whatever reason, that book really got me into horror movies. So I went, you know, I, I remember this was <clears throat> shortly afterwards that summer um, when I was off of school. You know, I, I'd go down to my local video store, which not even a blockbuster, folks, but the local video store, which they don't exist anymore. <laughs> um, Island video for me, bro. Yeah, That's what it was uh, it, mine was called Mr. Willie's Video, Johnstown, PA represent. <laughs> Um, but I'd go down to Mr. Willie's video store and I, and I'd, I'd rent every day or every week. I don't remember how frequently it was, but, uh, I, I'd go out and I'd rent, uh, one of the movies that I saw in this book. And I started with the universal movies, like the Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, all those. Uh, and then I started graduating to like the more, you know, to the, to the eighties slasher movies. So I went through Friday the 13th. I, I, I think I watched all the ones up until, you know, the, the most recent one, and then same with Nightmare on Elm Street, and then I kind of saved Halloween for last. Um, I don't know why it was just kind of it, I just was doing them in a row, like you know I wanted to hit one franchise and another franchise and another franchise. So then I hit Halloween last, and Halloween for whatever reason was the only movie I saw from the series. I only saw the first one. I didn't. I never went back and like visited like I've seen some of them now. I've seen some of the sequels now, but it, during that time period, I only ever watched the first one, and that's when I watched it. And I, I remember like not really being scared because I was scared of the other ones, but I wasn't super scared of this one. I, I'm not sure why because I think I was. Maybe maybe I was at that point kind of uh, desensitized to to the to the violence and, and to the horror, so it wasn't too much for me. But I, I wonder if it would have been different if I would have watched that one first, and, and as opposed to right. after all the Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street ones. But let, let me ask you this though, okay? Because you brought up the book fair, bro. Now that that got me all nostalgic and everything. The very first book that I ever bought from a book fair at school. Bro, do you remember the movie The Page Master with Macaulay Culkin? I do remember that movie. Yes, that was the first book I ever bought at a book. So that was an was actual like book before. Grade. Was it a? So was it a book that became a movie, or was this like the movie? It was a book adaptation. It was a movie, but I had bought the picture book adaptation of it. Aha. Uh-huh, okay, I do remember that movie. I don't remember not liking it too much, from what I can remember. I remember, like, the year after that, um, my mother couldn't give me any money for a book. So I remember all the kids got to go to the book fair. I had to sit in, in the classroom, like, doing work. And I was so mad at my mom. <laughs> I, like, I couldn't go to the book fair. And I remember, like, two years after that, they had, like, the – do you remember the craze? Like, it must have been around, like, 96, 97, maybe 98, where, like, with the spinner yo-yos, where that was a thing for a while, like a fad. Mm. Every kid in my school had one of those spinner yo-yos, and at the book fair, they actually sold one of those like books where they can teach you how to do the tricks with the yo-yos, and I actually bought one of those that year. My bro, book fairs, book fairs were the, the big thing, a big part of the calendar year at school, bro. Like legit. I do, I do kind of remember. Uh, I, I do remember the book fair being a big deal. I don't remember the spinner yo-yo fad. I got to be honest. But around ninety six, ninety seven, I was a sophomore, junior in high school. So maybe like high school kids weren't doing it. <laughs> maybe that's why. That maybe. <laughs> but but in high school they weren't. There weren't any more book fairs in high school though. It was. I think it ended like exactly for us. I think it was middle school, maybe elementary, maybe the end of elementary school that it ended. I don't know if we did them in middle school or not. I can't remember that far back. Um, and it was like it was Scholastic, I think that sponsored him, right? The Scholastic. Yes, book fair, Scholastic. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. Scholastic. You're right. I do remember that. Uh, anyway, oh, good times at the book fair. Uh, anyway, it, you know, it, it, when I think about it, it is kind of odd that they had that like a monster book at a book fair. 
Um, but again, it wasn't, they didn't go into like the hardcore stuff like Jason and Freddy and Michael Myers and stuff. It was just like the universal ones. And a lot of those, yeah. and a lot of those characters did, you know, have like literary, you know, uh, backgrounds to them because I remember, you know what I remember too, that's the first time I read, uh, I, I also, I got into this phase Then I read the, that's the first time I read like Dracula and Frankenstein, the books, but they were like really abridged versions for kids you know what i mean so they were like a hundred pages long or something they got the gist of the story but it was not real it was not the real version and then like i remember like saying like uh later on in life it's like oh yeah i read dracula i read frankenstein and then someone like started talking to me about i'm like wait did i read it because and then i actually looked what looked looked at the dracula book I'm like, oh, I did not read this <laughs> because that book is hard to read. It's it's like a series of letters and it, it kind of jumps all over the place. It is not what I read <laughs> in elementary school at all. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up too. This will be the last thing on, on book fairs and then we can move on. But I think seventh grade was the last time I went to a book fair. That was in 2000. Um, and the last book I remember buying at a book fair was Dracula, the actual Dracula novel. Okay. Um, and I remember, like, I started to read it, and then, but it's just, you know, like, the 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 journal of Jonathan Harker, May third, like, ugh, you know, like, <laughs> like I was, already, I don't think I even got halfway through Dracula before I just stopped reading it because, you know, I'm a kid with a short attention span, so yeah, it's not meant time. for kids, and not even in the sense of like, oh, it's too adult. It's just the writing style is not kid friendly. Like, it's just not. Uh, it. it, it, it I tried. I tried reading through that thing, and I just couldn't make it. I could not do it. So you, you and me are are, are both guilty of uh, not reading Dracula. <laughs> um, but yeah, man. It's funny though because if you watch the Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola movie, it does kind of which I just bought. By the way, I just bought the signature edition of yeah. that, the which is the Digibook. So I'm very excited to go back and watch that. <laughs> um, yeah, that that's. Uh, is a little bit more faithful in like the telling of it because it does it kind of uses the the journal convention. It doesn't stick to it through the whole movie, I don't think, but it does kind of like there. You know, uh, Jonathan uh, has journal entries and Mina has journal entries, and yeah, it, it does take the kind of it does do that throughout the film, which I think is interesting. Right. Anyway, back to Halloween. Um. So we're gonna. I'm gonna go into some of the background on this, and then we're kind of go, kind of go into the plot like we usually do. But uh, so John Carpenter, this was kind of his first, and I don't even want to say big movie because the film was was still an independent production. But uh, this was kind of the first kind of time that he got national attention. Uh, he he had kind of started with his career with a film called Dark Star, which was really a student film mm-hmm. from uh, I think he was UCLA, where he was a UCLA student. Um, uh, or USC, I can't remember. Um, but either way, he was a film student, in, 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 and he made this film, Dark Star, and he kind of put, like, I think he said, like, $20,000 into it to kind of expand it into a feature film that, was that you know, got him a little tiny bit of attention, which led him to make the uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which is, uh, um, which had a, a bit of, little bit of a bigger budget, but again, was a, was a very small independent production. Now, have you ever seen uh, either Dark Star or Assault on Precinct Thirteen? I for I haven't seen Dark Star, but Assault on Precinct Thirteen, I actually have the Shout Factory Blu-ray. Oh, nice, so, nice. Like, that's a that's great a, that's film. a great flick. Yeah. It's a great film. It's really a lot of fun. Uh, Do it, not watch the remake. No, I the, the remake was bad. The it's a yeah. bad remake. But um, 
Dark Star is an interesting movie. You can fi- it's hard to find because it, it, I think it's had a print on DVD. Uh, I did watch it, and it's yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. <laughs> it's <laughs> I mean, it's One definitely it definitely looks like a student film. I'll, I'll give it, it. It looks like a very impressive student film for the time, but it looks like a student film. Uh, <laughs> it, it's basically three guys on a spaceship that are like kind of lonely, and they are they're like blowing up planets, and the ship does kind of goes crazy and and it, it's kind of goofy like there's some comedy in it but i'm not sure if it's intentional or if it's on purpose it's a weird film it's really really weird um but it, it's worth watching if you're like a john carpenter completist uh but it's still kind of weird if you, if you can find it anywhere streaming i mean good luck but i, I don't think i can I, I think it's kind of hard to find nowadays anyway yeah uh assault and priest and their team got him you know, was pretty successful, so it, it, it kind of got, got him the notoriety, um, and, and it drew the attention of these two producers. And I have their names written down because I do not have them memorized. Let me look: Erwin uh, Yablans and um, Mustafa Akkad. Uh, yeah, they, they were the ones who kind of noticed Carpenter's Assault in Precinct Thirteen, and uh, they, you know, they came to him with an idea of basically uh, uh, someone stalking babysitters. Um, and killing them off, and they they asked him, you know, if they want he wanted to direct, and they he said that he thinks he, he thought he, at first he was kind of reluctant to do it because he didn't really want to make those kind of movies. He's he's Carpenter. If you if you ever hear him doing interviews, uh, he he was a big fan of those B movies like uh, it came from outer space and things like that. But he also really loved westerns, which is Assault and Precinct Thirteen was basically the movie Rio Bravo, but in a police station. Um, exactly. <laughs> which Rio Bravo is a great movie too, but um, he wanted to make Westerns, but you know, nobody else was like banging down his door. So he's like, all right, I'll make it. And he gave him the figure of $300,000. They kind of held him to that budget. And, um, you know, and the reason they kind of had faith in him to do it was because he gave him a low figure and he, he said that he wouldn't take any money for fees. I think they only, he only got paid like $10,000. Um, but correct. he 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 would take ten percent of the gross, and they were impressed by the fact that he had so much faith in the movie that he would take ten percent of the gross. That's why they hired him. Um, it turned out to be a pretty decent uh, deal for him because uh, the movie went on to make a lot of money. Um, the film was very a very 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 quick production. He and uh, Deborah Hill wrote the script in ten days. And then they only, and then they filmed it in twenty days. Now that's kind of insane. Yeah, I can't even imagine how how that's done. But I mean, you know, I I mean, I had, a, I shot a twelve minute film, and it took me freaking all damn day, and I only used like twelve minutes of it. So I can imagine what like trying to you know kind of kind of budget your schedule and kind of these tight shoots. I can kind of imagine like the kind of hell that they had to go through. Yeah, um, I can't even imagine, like, and the movie, I mean, it's good, good 90 minute movie and 20 days to film that. It's just, I mean, that's, that is, you know, and if you look at his, his, the rest of his productions, you know, you can see where he kind of gets that kind of work ethic, uh, because it kind of shows in his other movies too. But, um, so the, the film, the film was shot in uh, Southern California kind of doubling as Illinois. And I think that they kind of found a good spot for it because uh, I'm not going to lie. When I watched the movie again, it it really kind of creeps me out a little bit because the street in Haddonfield really, really looks like the neighborhood 
where my uh, where my in laws live, uh, where my <laughs> where my wife's where my wife's parents live. Uh, every time yeah. I go, I head over there. I feel like I'm in Haddonfield. Uh, I mean, it's it looks looks like that same street. So to me, like they're saying that it's Illinois, it looks like Illinois to me because it looks like my, my wife's in laws' nice. house. Um, uh, Doctor Loomis um, was first. The role was first offered to Peter Cushing. And both Christopher Lee, both big Hammer Horror guys, but both of them turned to part down. Uh, and, you know, uh, Donald Pleasance was hired instead, which is kind of a big deal for them because he had just been in, uh, he, you know, not he had just been, but he, he had had some notoriety in, in James Bond films as uh, Blofeld. As Blofeld, uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, so he, so it was kind of, he was the big, he was their biggest star. Uh, Christopher Lee later did say that he kind of thought, he, he he. There was a big uh, regret for him uh, because that would have been probably you know because at that point Lee was kind of on the downswing of his career, so it probably would have kind of helped boost it a little bit. So um, it would have been interesting to see how Christopher Lee would have done that role, and he would have been great. I, I just I can completely picture him just like when uh, in the uh, in the remake when they cast uh, Malcolm McDowell as uh, Dr. Loomis. He was one of the bright spots of the film is the casting of, of Malcolm McDowell in that role because he was just absolutely perfect and he nails it. And I think Christopher Lee would have done the exact same thing. So I haven't seen the remakes the, the the remake, but from what I'm told, like they play that character differently in the remake. Like he's much more of a he's much more of a jerk in that film than in the in the, the original. That, yeah, and he, he yeah they kind of do that a little differently. Like he's kind of a little more aggressive towards Michael. Because the thing is, you get more background. Like you actually see him with Michael as a child. Like and he's they're doing the sessions, you know. And he's like he's friendly with them, you know, as as a kid. But then as you know, as he gets older, he starts getting more like more aggressive with him. And he he's, he can kind of treads that line between you know kind of a a hole and you know a doctor. So. Yeah. Now I don't know if this is in one part one or two of the remakes, but. I did – the only thing I've ever seen from either one of those films – again, I don't know which one it was – was I was flipping through the channels once, and I saw Weird Al. I was like, oh, hey, it's Weird Al. And he was like on a talk show. And then I saw Malcolm McDowell, and I saw Chris Hardwick. And I was like, wait, what the hell am I watching here? <laughs> and, and, and then and then I, I realized that the movie was Halloween, uh, the remake That's Halloween. And uh, it was like he was Dr. Loomis on a talk show, and Weird Al was playing himself. Chris Hardwick was playing some sort of – TV not like late night TV shows and and Dr. Loomis is there talking about some my how things wrote. have changed for Chris Hardwood yeah yeah right so. <laughs> uh, and I'm wondering does that one or two that that that's from because that's the only thing I've ever seen from either one of those movies it's two okay. um now I haven't seen two but you know but... it's not one <laughs> I, I know it's not one because okay. I remember Weird Al, Chris Hardwick, and Malcolm McDowell in a scene together. So <laughs> Cause Cause that's just a, weird, a wacky pair. It, it's a weird it's a weird combination because that that's what stopped me that's what stopped me cold in my tracks and I was flipping through the channel I was like wait what did I just see and this was and I saw this after like Chris Hardwick had become you know after Talking Dead and like he had kind of reached his notoriety so it was like okay Chris Hardwick, Weird Al, and Malcolm McDowell. What the hell is this movie? So I had to stop and watch it for like five minutes. I was like, okay, um, yeah, I have still never seen it. I just I know that that scene exists in one of the movies. So that's all I know. Um, yeah, I've I've never seen two. I've only seen the the first remake, but part two, like I've tried to see it, but I've heard like really bad things about two, so I kind of avoided it. I I've I've never heard a good thing about two. I've heard I've heard mixed things on one. 
that I've never heard anybody praise to at all. Exactly. Now, in the remakes, do they have the, the, the William Shatner mask, or is it different? I believe it's the same mask. I mean, it has to be. You know, like, I mean, it is... I mean, the mask they use looks like the exact same one, but whether it, it is the William Shatner mask, I couldn't tell you. Because I know in some of the sequels, it, it's definitely not the William Shatner mask. I think it's like Chris and Michael Myers. The mask looks way different. Yeah, that one, I think from that one forward in the original like series, I think it was, it was a different mask. But before that, like in four and five, it was probably the the same mask. Now, for those who don't know what we're talking about, uh, the the films was on such a you know tight budget, they didn't really have a lot of time to like spend on costume design. So they took a Star Trek Captain Kirk rubber mask uh, <laughs> and painted That's it a great white. Story and painted it white, and that is how you got the. Uh, the uh, iconic Michael Myers mask look. Um, I wonder why has William Shatner ever talked about this? Because I wonder what he thinks about that. That they used I don't his think so. Face his face painted white as 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 an iconic horror movie villain. I don't know if he's ever talked about that. I'm about to look it up though because <laughs> I'm sure he has had something over the years. Uh, the the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, on the background of the film that I think is is interesting is that. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was not the first uh, was not the first choice. It was someone else. I think it was. Um... Go ahead. All right. I... Go ahead. Oh, I, I wasn't going to say anything. I thought you were going to. I thought you were interrupting me for for something. I thought you had breaking news on William Shatner. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm still googling. Oh, you okay. can go ahead with the yeah, casting. So, yeah, so Jamie Lee Curtis was not the original choice. It was uh, Anne Lockhart, who was June Lockhart's daughter. Uh, and June Lockhart, for those who don't know, was the was the lead in the Lassie TV show, um, but uh, she wasn't able to do it, so she turned the role down, and they went to Jamie Lee Curtis, who at the time was on the soap opera of some sort, uh, and John Carpenter didn't actually know that she was the daughter of Janet Lee, who was a scream queen in her own right, as she was the the vic- uh, uh, Anthony Perkins's first victim in Psycho in the shower scene. So, um, spoilers for Psycho, if you've never seen Psycho for a movie that's over 50 years old. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so so I think that's kind of uh, – and there's – and, and, you know, Carpenter has admitted that uh, Psycho played a heavy influence on this film. So it's very interesting that he didn't know that he was casting, you know, Vivian Lee – or Janet Lee's daughter um, and uh, in, in a movie where she's basically being the, the victim of the killer as well. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and definitely. not just that 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 you know Jamie Lee Curtis became an iconic scream queen in her own right, you know, like so it, it's it was just interesting. Um, any any news on Shatner? I can't find any comments from Shatner, although I am on Star Trek dot com and there is an article that says was Michael Myers Halloween mask William Shatner's face, <laughs> and they actually show like the mask before the paint and then after. So it looks like what they did was, other than painting the the mask, they actually kind of opened the the eye holes a little more. Because if you look at the original mask, it just like has normal sized eye holes, whereas in the the film, the eye holes are a little bigger. Yeah, and what I think about is interesting about the film is that even though the eye holes are bigger, the the way the movie's shot, and this is really uh, a testament to the cinematography. The way the movie's shot, you don't the eye holes are pretty much black. Like you can't really see yep. his eyes during the whole during, Exactly. During during Which the Which is film. great filming, great directing, you know. Cuz 
Well, as well as we'll get to, like, you, the the idea is is not he's not a person. Like, he's just a personification of evil. You know, right. which is a, a great concept. Right, and, and and that's what bugged me about one of the sequels. Again, I don't know. All, after Halloween three, I think all the sequels really blend together for me. So I don't know which one it was, um, but it, one of those sequels, like I just know that there's a shot of there's a couple of shots of him of whoever's playing Michael Myers where you can see the eyes behind the mask, and it just it totally breaks the it breaks the illusion. It does not work. <laughs> uh, but let, let's get into the film. Halloween. Uh, the film starts. Uh, you know. You know. You know. There was another. Remember Batman Returns when uh, near the end when uh, um, Batman's about to take off the mask. Oh and yeah, the and it's, it, yes, yes, I know exactly what you're gonna say. Go ahead. And you see that the 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 eyes aren't painted black; it's just the regular. You see, it's like his skin tone, and it kind of ruins the illusion for you <laughs> that that's not part of the mask. That was I always remember that scene because it was like that's just like why would they leave that shot in? You know, that's just so it's, I don't know, man. It's even what? worse. It's even worse because. Right before he takes it off, the black eye eye paint is there, and then it cuts to like a reaction shot of Christopher Walken, and then it cuts yes. back, and the eye paint is gone. So it's even more obvious because like <laughs> you, two seconds ago you just saw that the paint was there. Oh, it's so bad. I do love that movie gone. though, but that that shot. Me I hate too. That shot. I hate that shot. Me too. I it. despise that shot. No, it bothers me to this day. <laughs> and, and you know what I found interesting is that in the movie Kick Ass, um, they the um. Uh, the big daddy character played by Nicolas Cage, whenever he they show him, like, suiting up, and they show him actually painting his eyes, which is something you never see in the Batman movies, because clearly he paints his eyes to get that look. And exactly. it doesn't matter if it's Michael Keaton or Christian Bale. They all have that painted eye look. But, uh, you know, um, big daddy Nicolas Cage is the only one they ever show actually doing it, and he's the kind of like the Batman, like, knockoff character in that movie. The, the Batman parody, essentially, yeah. 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 Anyway... Um, so the film, uh, Halloween, it starts, it starts with a flashback on Halloween night, 1963, uh, where we see, uh, well, at first we don't see any, we don't see who it is. We just see someone watching, uh, a house, um, of, of this teenage girl and her boyfriend, uh, kind of making out in the house and they kind of go upstairs to do whatever teenagers do whenever they're in the prime of their youth. Uh, and then you just see this – the camera just takes this – the perspective of this person just walking around the house and then he picks up a knife and he kind of goes upstairs. Uh, after the – and after the, the the boyfriend leaves the house, you see him walk in on this on this, uh, on this this young lady and then a knife reaches up and then, you know, kills kills the girl. Uh, it is soon revealed afterwards after – because that whole, that whole opening shot is uh, – is from that perspective. It's on a steady cam, I believe. It's on a steady cam. Uh, <clears throat> I believe it's one shot, but it might. They might have cheated because when he puts on the clown mask, it kind of goes black for a bit, and then you see the eye holes through the mask. So they probably yeah. did a cut there. A but cut for the, there. That but for the sense. most part, it's it's a seamless cut. It's a seamless shot, right? Um, and then you know when he comes back out, you finally get a, a, a third party shot where it's not the the POV. And it's his parents taking off the mask, and it's a, it's revealed to be a six year old boy holding a knife uh, with his sister's blood all over it. Um, so, a couple of things there. It, 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 I love the fact that in this that they they put you in the shoes of the killer, um, like pretty much right off the bat, and you are, and you as a, as an audience member are kind of taking part in stalking this this girl who ends up being his sister. Um, and it's I don't know. It's the it's it, it's a very cool. 
uh, opening shot that you don't really see in horror movies nowadays anymore. Yeah, and, and the thing um, now, whether it pioneered or not, we can argue not really because I think Black Christmas had a similar shot um, with the the POV. But I mean, the thing about Halloween is that because it pioneered a lot of other like typical slasher film tropes. It's more remembered for like you know okay people think oh it pioneered the the killer's perspective POV shot when it really didn't, um but it has that POV shot has gone on to be in a lot a lot of films ranging from B movies to you know some really good uh some really good horror films like I talked about uh the Maniac remake from a couple years ago that used that shot tremendously and to full effect too and I love that movie That's, I thought that was a great great remake but um. But yeah, I, I love I love that POV shot. Like, you're kind of trapped in that. Uh, like, like the director's forcing you into the mindset of the killers, forcing you into like their their view, and you can't escape. You know their heinous acts. You know, but you just you you kind of like kind of taking the whole voyeur aspect of Psycho from the beginning and kind of just um like increasing the tension level by a hundred times. You know, you, you're you, you're the uh, the un, uh, how do you say it? What's a good word? The unwanted voyeur, I should say. Like you're forced, you, you don't want to be a voyeur, but the director's making you be a voyeur to such like a heinous crime, a heinous act, and you know that that kind of perspective sits with you, and it helps kind of build the tension for the film. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and um, and it's during this scene that you get one of the only actual like blood that you see in the film and it's whenever you see the blood on the knife after he after he kills his sister and you don't really see blood again i'm struggling to think of another time you see blood in the rest of the movie because i don't think you do i don't think you do i mean the only the only thing i can think of is the 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 most violent death after this i think is when he kills the uh what's his name the the uh the boyfriend uh is it paul I think his name is Paul, where he like oh Paul, yeah, where he shoves this thing through his face and, and like kind of uh, uh, and then like you know mounts him on the wall. I think that's the most violent death you see, um, but it, even then it's pretty goreless. Exactly, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, so yeah, so, so you start off the movie pretty pretty big like that. The other thing I really enjoy, uh, really appreciate about this is that from this from the time that he puts on the mask, you are already kind of getting. Like a like an audio, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an audio uh, uh, motif, because you start the hearing breathing. him breathing, you know, through the mask, and then through the rest of the film, whenever you see him stalking, uh, stalking a uh, 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 lorry, you hear the breathing over and over again. So it it, it it starts that motif, and I think that's that's that that's a good that's a good tie back to it. Uh, so. After that, we kind of flash forward, and we see um, we see Doctor Loomis heading to a, a, a uh, it's a psychiatric hospital of some sort, correct? Yeah. Uh, and he's basically there to uh, what is he trying to do? Like he's he's there to uh, transfer him or something? What's he trying to do? They're supposed to pick him up to take him to some sort of court hearing in the morning. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Uh, and he—he he totally is not. He is not on board with them 
releasing him or him getting out of the out of this hospital. And once they arrive there, and of course it's a dark and stormy night, right? And when he arrives there, he sees all these all these uh, you know patients just wandering around, which tips him off like, uh oh, something is terribly wrong. And that's whenever you see not you don't see his face, but you see Michael Myers bust out. He and he you know steals the car away from them and runs off into the night. Uh, and uh, back to Haddonfield, which now perpetuates the story. Michael Myers is loose. You know, he's 21 years old. He's loose, and he's going back to Haddonfield. God knows what's going to happen next. And then next we flash forward to Halloween, and then this is where we pick up with Laurie for the rest of the film. And now the, the, tr- like the story kind of starts kind of kicking into motion here. Yep. So uh, the rest of the story is pretty kind of basic as far as a, a, a slasher film goes. So Lori is Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh she's kind of the nerdy high school student. She's not uh she doesn't have a boyfriend. Uh she's very kind of pure and sweet and innocent. She's got two friends, uh one of them who's like the cheerleader slutty type and the other one who's kind of the smart ass like uh not bad girl, but she's kinda of like the the smart aleck kind of type. And these are types that you see that you will, you know, start to see in horror movies going forward uh, of the different types. And, you know, if you've seen one horror movie in the last, you know, 40 years, you know which one of these people is going to survive, which one of these people is going to die. But this is kind of the movie that kind of started the trend of like, you know, you know, defining the tropes of, of who these people are. Exactly. And it kind of, and uh, popularized the whole notion of the final girl where like you know the the last girl standing the one who quote-unquote kills the uh the killer is the one who's like you know innocent and pure as opposed to her friends who are like the promiscuous types of drug users who got killed at some point in the narrative correct yeah the, 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 this is um uh a you know the slasher movies are kind of um in general, especially the Friday the Thirteenth films are a are a morality play, in that you know they the audience kind of see and they they, they explore this later in the Cabin in the Woods film, uh, but you know where these characters have different uh, archetypes and the most the more sinful you are, the likely the higher the likelihood that you're going to get killed in the film, uh, and this and it's just, this film like as you said kind of started that that trend. Uh, of the final girl, uh, and and you, it's really a trend that really has not been deviated from too often since then. I mean, whatever works, right? Like you have a concept, it works, and you, they just stick with it. Um. So uh, the setup here is that Lori is is you know it's it's after school, and that she kind of keeps seeing. Like through the back, you know, out of the corner of her eye, she she keeps thinking she's seeing this guy in a white mask. And then she, when she looks again, he's gone. She sees him hiding behind hood bushes, and then he's gone. You know, she sees him hiding behind like a uh, like a a clothesline with some clothes on it, and then he's gone. She's starting to get a little bit freaked out about it, but she doesn't really not too too worried. Her friends can't don't seem to see it. But the other person who who uh, is kind of worried about his presence uh, is 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 her. the person she's going to be babysitting later that night, Tommy. Uh, after Tommy gets bullied in school and he drops his pumpkin, which I know I shouldn't <laughs> laugh, but every time he drops it, I laugh. When he lands on the pumpkin and it just splits open, it's so I don't know why, but I just laugh. I just laugh so hard every time I see that scene. 
You're supposed to feel bad I laugh for because him. He, I laugh because he doesn't seem to care. Like he, like afterwards, like when you see it from from Michael's point of view, like he he gets up and he just starts walking home. Like he doesn't care about the pumpkin anyway. So like I can't. He's not crying. Like he doesn't seem like he's upset. He just gets up and he just starts walking home. Like like right. it's nothing. That's what I laugh at. Exactly. But um. But during the just reason for the he, day at school. Yeah, you know? <laughs> the reason the reason he gets he gets bullied is because these kids are um are going oh the boogeyman's gonna get you the boogeyman it, it, you know, and, and that's where kind of and they trip him and he falls on it. As he's walking away, one of the bullies kind of bumps right into Michael Myers. It's kind of the first time you see him almost in full. Like you don't see his head. A legit you don't see jump face. scare, by the way. Yeah, I really good jump scare. Stuff. Really good jump scare because the kid just walks right into him, and Michael Myers just kind of holds him by the shoulders and just lets him go. Uh, but it's a great. You don't see his face. Uh, presumably he's wearing the mask, uh, but uh, it, it's just it, it's a great great shot. Uh, it's right around this time also that uh, that uh, Laurie and her friend, um, I believe it's uh, Linda, I believe it's Linda who's the daughter of the the sheriff. Annie's the daughter. Oh, Annie's the daughter. I'm sorry. So uh, Laurie and Annie kind of drive by a hardware store that's been broken into, uh, and uh, that's one where we we are led to believe, okay, Michael Myers has bro- broken into there, and he's probably stolen some stuff that he's going to be killing people with later. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the sheriff goes, you know, it's just some Halloween mask, some kitchenware, I think he said also. So, okay, knife and then the mask. There you go. That explains, that explains it. That explains everything. Instead of like in the remake where there's like some symbolism for why he picked that mask, you know. So let's not get into that. Though. Oh, seriously? See, that's annoying. I like the fact that it's just it's just a mask. It's just a random mask. It's just exactly that's what Jar Carpenter was in. Like a lot of these things that he tried to like, he give every single detail as to why. Like sometimes you, you don't care why. It's just he got the mask because it's just a mask. You know, that, that's it. You don't need to know why he picked that mask. It's just the mask. Yeah, and, and you know it's it's interesting because up until this point, you know the movie kind of continues. It goes into Halloween night where Laurie's taking care of Tommy. Uh, Annie is taking care of uh, Lin. I think her name is Lindsay. Uh, is she's she's got like I mean, Lindsay? Scenes. Yeah, she's got like two Li- scenes. Little Lindsay Wallace. Yeah, she's got like two scenes. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and, and you know her friends taking care of Lindsay, and then the movie kind of and you see Michael kind of stalking around for, but but he doesn't kill anybody for a while. Like the actual death toll in the film is pretty low compared to other slasher films. You go to you watch a, like a Friday the Thirteenth sequel and there's like fifteen people die. This I think maybe there's <laughs> right. four or five, like four or five, four people. or five. I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty low for a slasher movie. It's pretty low. So there's a good chunk of time where he's not killing anybody. He's just stalking people. He's just stalking out the situation of the two houses and and. Um, and there and there's seemingly no real reason as to why he's stalking these particular people. He's just he's just just wants to kill them. Um, exactly. That's the thing about this movie. Like I'm watching it uh, to get ready for this uh, for the show, and I'm thinking about it. Like, okay, I know like we know what the background is of Laurie, but they don't give you any hints for that in this first film. Like he's just stalking her, like just because. Like he came back to his hometown and he's just picked this girl out randomly. It seems. And he's stalking like you don't know why until part two, why he picked her. But like when you watch the first one, like it, it, it kind of enhances the terror because it's, he seemingly just picked somebody at random and just started stalking them without knowing like the background. Right. But I think that that kind of that helps the story, though. It does. It does. And I think it makes it better uh, because it, it, it is it is 
scarier that there's seem there's seemingly no motivation other than he's just going to kill people. Um, exactly. So during this, we also kind of take some breaks to see uh, Doctor Loomis, who's come back to Haddonfield, and he's kind of doing some investigations of his own. Like one of the first things he notices is that uh, the the grave of his sister uh, uh, has been defiled, and the gravestone is missing. Not his sister, but Michael Myers' sister uh, that he killed. Um, that that has been the grave the gravestone is missing, and the and the and, and like the 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 kind of area has been kind of you know defiled or however you want to uh, right. phrase it. Uh, he gets in touch with this sheriff and he kind of tells him what's going on with with the, with the uh, with Michael Myers and he goes back. He basically camps out in front of the um, in front of the old Myers home, which is like the neighborhood spooky home. You know, every every neighborhood like has like a spooky mm-hmm. house. This is like the spooky house because of all the because of what happened all those years ago. Um so he thinks he's going to show back up there, and he kind of camps out there. And that's what's kind of funny about this is that it's not funny, but you can see why, like, if they only had 20 days, uh, how how they managed to, like, fit Donald Pleasance in here. Because his his scene, he doesn't have that many scenes, and all those, and most of the scenes he has are in, like, one spot, you know? So they probably got all those done in, like, two days. You know what I mean? But, but hey, he got 20K for, like, four scenes. Yeah, so, I know, I, I know. Mean, I can... It's pretty good. It's it's good. It's good work if you can get it right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so so he kind of camps out there for the whole night. We kind of cut back to him occasionally between that and what's going on uh, with Laurie and and uh, and Lindsay, or not Lindsay and Annie. So this is whenever eventually this is when we finally start to see uh, Michael Michael Myers start killing people. The his first victim, and I'm sorry, I keep messing him. Annie is it Annie or uh, or. Or Linda that gets killed. Annie's Annie the, was first. Annie's the and Linda's the one with the boyfriend, right? Yes. Okay. So Annie, right? So Annie uh, gets some, and, and I love the fact that the the film totally kind of uh, the film fakes you out because there's a whole extended sequence where she 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 gets her like her pants dirty and she goes out to like the the washing machine which is which is not connected to the house she has to go to like a shed which is wash, weird like I, I find that very weird is. i guess that's how it was in the 70s yeah uh, and then she she has to take off her pants and she's like half naked and then the the door slams shut and she gets locked inside she tries to like climb out the window and the whole time you are expecting oh my god what, he's going to come out and kill her and he actually never does not during that moment anyway He's just that, and the anticipation of you of of your waiting for him to kill her like builds up, builds up, builds up, and it doesn't happen. It just exactly you just keep waiting for it, and you know he's there because you see a shot of him like once, like through some curtains or something, and you know he's right there. He's about he's gonna do it, but he doesn't do it. He just waits on it, which makes it better because um, it's it's like that old uh, what Hitchcock always said, you know. uh, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but he said you. If you if a bomb blows up in a scene, it's not suspenseful. It just it's surprising, but it's not suspenseful. But if you know there's a bomb under a desk and the two there are two characters sitting there talking, you're just it, the audience is is in complete suspense the entire time because they know there's a bomb and they're waiting for it to blow up. And that's what that's what it is with Michael Myers. They know that he's right there, but he doesn't do it. And in fact, he kills her a little later. Uh, after you think you almost kind of forget about it. 
because you know then she has a phone call and she you know convinces Lori to watch uh watch her kid that she's watching because she doesn't want to watch him anymore uh she doesn't want to watch her anymore she wants to go out and uh party with with her own boyfriend and this is whenever this is what i think was kind of brilliant she goes to the garage where her car is and she tries the door and she's like oh i left my keys and because she tries to open the door and it's and it's locked right she goes back gets her keys and then when she comes back to the car, she doesn't think about it, but she just opens the car door and it's unlocked all of a sudden. And then that's when you know, oh crap! There, he's now. This is where she's gonna die. <laughs> but um, see, but that happens so fast that you no, know, as the audience, you don't think about that. She just opens the car and you forget that. Wait a minute, the car was locked before. Yeah. And all of a sudden, she didn't even need the key. She just opened it. Yeah. Like, like she, like she didn't think about it. Neither did the audience until it's too late. Right. And then, you know, as she's getting in, she's kind of getting to the car. Then, of course, there comes Michael out of the back seat and chokes her to death. <laughs> chokes her to death in a pretty violent death. Now, you know, here's the thing. It's movies like this that to this day, even as a 36-year-old man, whenever I get into a car in the middle of the night, I always check the back seat because you never know. Because you never yeah, know. Right. But it's funny because I think this is the only movie I've ever seen where someone actually attacks someone from the back seat. It's always something that you think about. It's like a cliche. And now you, there's certainly movies where like a, someone gets in the back seat and then they look in their rearview mirror, someone's sitting there waiting for them, and they like have like some sort of threatening conversation. But it's like the only t- the only movie I can think of off the top of my head where someone is actually there to kill the person that's about to get in the front seat. I've never, I don't think I've seen it in another movie. Yeah, I'm having a hard time. Thinking of, I mean, I'm, I thought about Back to the Future Part Two when Marty got in the back seat of, of Bip's car, but he wasn't trying to kill him; he was just trying to take the almanac. But. Right, but like I can't think of another movie where someone actually try. I'm sure there are. I mean, you know, you guys can yeah, write me sure. and tell me that there are other movies, but this is the one that I can only think of. But it's because of movies like this that, like, you know, I'm not. I'm skeptic. I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in monsters or ghosts or the supernatural, but I do believe in like murdering psychopaths. So uh, I always do check the backseat of the car every time I get in, because <laughs> you never know. Exactly. <laughs> um, now it's at this point um, where I think Tommy looks out the window and he sees Michael Myers kind of stalking around, uh, stalking around, and then he starts to get freaked out about the boogeyman. Now, here's what I think is interesting, is that not only do does the film start the whole, uh, uh, you know, final girl thing and the whole, like, morality thing where, where, the, where the, the, the virgin, so to speak, uh, kind of survives till the end, but it's not just that. I think it goes a little bit deeper in that it's not just that, it's, that she's – is that the other people are bad – but it's also that she's innocent, and I think the the other person that's innocent in this film is Tommy. They're both innocent people. They're pure. They're innocent. They're not like sinful in any way. And those are the only two people that can actually see Michael coming. Everyone else can't, but those two are the only one that can see him, which I think is a very interesting like. Yeah, it's almost like being innocent, being pure, kind of gives you that kind of sixth sense where like you can see the evil coming. Whereas everyone else who gets killed in the movie are in the middle of basically an, an, an immoral act, a quote-unquote immoral act. Uh, and, you, know, you know, Annie is about to go... Ditch, Annie just ditched her kid to go, uh, to go um, party with her boyfriend. Because you notice, when she was hanging half out the window in the shed, Michael didn't kill her. 
But once she was leaving and she ditched the kid to go off and party, that's when Michael killed her. Now, I'm not saying that's how Michael planned it, but that's how the filmmakers planned it. And I think that's very, very interesting. Right. Um, so then after this, this when we get the, after this, we get the next set of deaths, which is when Linda comes over with her boyfriend. Uh, and they, in very typical slash movie fashion, start to have sex and drink beer and do all sorts of things. Uh, and this is when uh, we get that very brutal death of uh, of uh, where he stabs him and kind of sticks him to the wall. Yeah, that's a great shot, by the way. And after he impales him, you just it just the they hold the shot of him just staring at the body, like as the life gets sucked out of it. You know, and it's just such a creepy, creepy scene because he's just staring at the body, and that's it. Like nothing's happening. You just see him kind of tilt his head. Look up, look down at the body, and it just creeps the hell out of you, you know? And you know what's interesting is that um, the Nick Castle, who was the shape, that, that's how Michael Myers was credited in the, in the, in the credits, the shape. Uh, he was the guy, he, he wasn't the guy under the mask at the end when they pulled the mask off, but he was the guy who was basically the stalker throughout the whole film. Uh, Nick Castle... Uh, his, his when he would ask John Carpenter for motivation for a scene, he would just say, "Just walk from over here and walk to that marker over there, and that's it." Like he never actually gave him any any direction. He just told him where to stand and where to walk to. But it's funny because you know, knowing that 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 actor, all he did was just walk to his marks, and he and that was it. That's all he was instructed to do. It still was menacing. Like the way they portrayed it, just by the, and I think it's because he just so calmly did it, and he wasn't like stalking and and being, you know, overly like like the like the too theatrical with it. Like he just did it. Like Jason Voorhees would be this like lumbering, you know, yeah, lumbering menace, right? Where he just is. Whereas Michael Myers, at least in this film, in this version of Michael Myers, he just kind of walked calmly from place to place, very unemotionally, very detached, which I think makes it creepier and scarier. Exactly. And it, and it's it's just, really just uh, I'm Carp- thinking about that scene now, and I'm getting chills. Like and it's just a greatly shot scene. And it's really just because Carpenter just didn't really give him any direction. So he just went in blank. Which I think is which kind is of true to what he's been saying. Like I mean, we keep bringing up the remake, but it's like because you know who cares why what his motivation is? He's just he's just there to kill people. You know, sometimes that's all that 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 people care about. Like sometimes all the audience cares about. He's just there to kill people. That's good enough. Like, you don't need this whole, like, Shakespearean history on the character. Now, the only thing uh, that I think is a little theatrical about Michael Myers, that it seems for, for the rest of the movie is a little out of character, is how he comes up with the, with the sheet over his head like he's a ghost. And then uh, and she and tricks um, Linda into thinking that he's Paul, I think his name is, underneath, yeah. underneath the... Uh, uh, I don't under- know. Paul, Paul was Annie's boyfriend. This was Bob. Bob, Bob was I'm Linda's. sorry. Bob, Bob was the one that was impaled. You're right, Bob. So uh, trying to think, you know, because he puts the glasses on over the sheet, and she thinks, "Oh, it's,", it's and then obviously he he kills her too. Um, but I, that's the only. It's not that it bothers me, but I just think it's a little out of character for the rest of the film that he he feels the need to be a little theatrical with the with the sheet over his head. I thought about that too, watching it last night, and you know, seeing that, watching that scene, I was like. It really doesn't fit with the with what he's been doing, like for the other ninety five percent of the film. Like it li- seemed like it was a little too out there for him. I mean, so you're absolutely right. Now I don't remember because I and I just watched this. I don't remember now when Tommy looks outside and he sees um, 
and he sees Michael Michael Myers carrying the the dead bo- the dead girl's body. Is it Annie he's carrying, or is it Linda? It's Annie. It, because when this happens, this is before uh, Linda and Bob go into the house. So, like, it's right after Annie dies, and then you see the shot of Tommy looking out the window, and he's carrying Annie into the house. And that's when he, you know, he starts getting scared and tells, you know, Lori, I saw the boogeyman. She's like, oh, no, you didn't. That's not the boogeyman or whatever she said. So then what – so yeah, so then so then this is – so after that point, uh, she start you know, Tommy's still freaking out. Uh, so she decides to go over to the house, to the other house, to see what's going on over there. And that's when she finds – Annie's dead body in the is it Annie's dead body she finds upstairs with the grave. Well, yeah. Well, well, what happens is if you remember, what happens is Linda uh, calls Lori because and Lori thinks, oh, it's finally Annie coming back to come that's pick right. up Lindsay. That's right. And then that's when Michael strangles Linda, which we didn't talk about. Like, yes, yes, yes. yes. Like as soon as she picks up the phone, like she starts hearing the moans and Lori's thinking, oh, she's probably having sex on the other line and she's teasing me, you know. And but then. You find out no, it's Michael Myers strangling her with the phone cord. Right. So, so that's when she goes over to investigate what's going on, and yes. she finds that's when she finds uh, the uh, the the body in the the bodies in the bed, and I think uh, Bob falls from like from like the ceiling hanging there. Um, yes. Which which is why would he do that? Like, <laughs> I mean, I love that scene, but like, it's a great jump scare scene. But why would he? Why why did he hang him up in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> See now that now, again, here's a little him being a little bit out of character from the rest of the film, being a little too theatrical. Well, that, I mean, and then merited. I mean, she she finds the the dead body with with the Lori, uh, not Lori. Um, uh, what, what's his sister's name? Uh, um, Julia was it Julia? Judith. Uh, Judith, uh, Judith, uh, Judith Myers. Judith. Judith Myers' grave on top of the bed with the dead body sitting there. And I remember when I was a kid, I didn't understand. I thought, like, did he dig up the grave and put his sister's body there? I just didn't, like, get, like, for whatever reason, I was like, no. And then it was a later view. He's like, oh, no, that's just one of the dead girls. And he just put the grave there. Like, for whatever reason, I kept, I thought that he had dug up the grave and put her there. <laughs> right? But... Because it was like, otherwise, why did he put that grave there? I didn't understand. I was so confused when I was a kid about that scene. Uh, so she freaks out. Michael tries, you know, killing her. He she, he he tries to stab her, and you know, like he like gets her arm or something. She gets away. Uh, she she gets that. Over- that was kind of that was kind of stupid, though. I will admit, because like he's literally right behind her, and he had like a direct shot. But like it's it's like he purposely missed. That's what it seemed like because he's lit. She's literally right in front of him, and and and, and from any angle that he would have that he would have come down with the knife, he could have gotten like. Into the shoulder, into her back, into her neck, but like it gets the side of her arm that only gets the, the cuts the sleeve, and that's it. Like that was that was kind of dumb. It's a little dumb, but I, I forgave yeah. it because it's like you know it's 1978. You know <laughs> these things. You know that they're trying to like I, I I feel like I always forgive things like that in older movies than I do in newer ones. You know because. I don't know why. I just tend to like. Forgive I mean, I don't really have a problem with it. It's just like when I was watching it, I was like, huh. That's kind of stupid, and then I just kind of let it go. <laughs> so, so she freaks out. She, 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 um, she bolts out of the house. See, here's the part where I think is a little, a little Hollywoody, right? Is that she's banging on the door to, to, uh, to, to, because she's locked out of the house, and Tommy and Lindsay are upstairs and it's sleeping, right? And she's banging on the door, let me in, let me in, let me in, and you see Michael like stalking her, coming, coming over, and the, Tommy has to go from all the way upstairs. He turns on the light. 
He walks over to the window. He's like, what's going on? She's like, let me in. He's like, okay. And then he walks all the way downstairs and opens the window or the door. And then she gets in. Like, in that time, like, Michael could have caught up to her and, like, killed her, right? And she's just banging on the door the whole time. It's like, he's walking really slow. Right. He's walking. But like- what was great about that scene, too, was that she went to the, the other neighbor's house first. And then the neighbor actually turned on the light to see what was going on and purposely decided not to help her probably thinking oh this is some some halloween prank i don't want to deal with it and went back to bed which is probably what i would have done bro like to be honest <laughs> um yeah probably i probably would have too <laughs> <laughs> so so she gets in the house and then she tells him you know go go upstairs lock yourselves in the bathroom or something and then she she thinks she she tries to call the cops obviously but again you know but then the line's dead you know, like in every horror movie, the line is dead. And then she realizes, oh, crap, I left the window open. And then that's whenever the suspense starts. And she's like, she doesn't know where he might be. He suddenly pops out of nowhere. And then she stabs him with a, a knitting needle, which they they set up earlier that she's uh, that she was doing yes. something. So it wasn't like out of nowhere. She stabs him with a knitting needle. And what I love is that there's no reaction from Michael. He just kind of grabs his neck and, like, kind of lurches backwards. But he doesn't, like, make a oh sound or anything. He just he's very silent the whole time because I don't think do they they don't ever explain why he doesn't talk right he just doesn't talk. No, uh, Luma just said for fifteen years he hasn't said a word or something like that. And yeah, they don't ever actually. That's it. No, I mean I know that they don't explain it in this movie. Like in none of the sequels, they don't ever explain it, right? Well, that I'm, I'm not sure because I haven't seen Halloween two or four or five in like the longest time. So okay, all right. Uh, so she thinks he's killed him. And she runs up and, and you know gets the gets the, the two kids and she said and th- this part I really love where she says I, you know I did you know you're right the boogeyman you know that was the boogeyman and Tommy's like well, what did you do she's like I killed him and Tommy says you can't kill the boogeyman and right then is whenever you see Michael pop up behind her and and then that's that, that that's a great it's a great shot because you see her in the foreground and you see Michael kind of coming up slowly behind her up the stairs. Now was this a new trope? This was this one of the things that it pioneered too because I. I... I think I read somewhere that this was the first film where, like, the killer, like, after supposedly dying, the killer came back to life. Yeah, now, is that you, true? Is that one of the things? Well, I mean, think about it. This is one of the first films where um, the not only that. Uh, see, there is actually a movie. Like, that, basically, it was the first film to have like the false finishes. Basically, that, like, yeah. like to talk about in other shows. Yeah, so like it, it, it's the first one I think that I can think of. But you also got to remember it was also one of the first movies horror movies that was sequelized because up until that point any of these slasher kind of movies that did exist there were, it was a one and done so by the end of the movie the killer was just dead right um or in jail or whatever the case may be whereas in by the end of this movie he keeps coming back uh so that by the end of the film whenever you see his body is missing it's like okay then he, you know, you're like it's a little bit more haunting because you know that he just keeps coming back, coming back. Um, I, I think that I don't think I had seen it in another film other than this one first, so I think it did popularize that um, that it's not over yet kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But but still, it, it's kind of interesting to think about. Like you've seen it so many times since the whole like the, you think the killer's dead. At this point, when you see it, you're like, he's not dead. You know, but I'm, I'm trying to imagine in 1978 watching Halloween when she stabs him in the eye with or in the neck, I think it was with a knitting needle. You're like, oh, that, that's it. It's done. And then later on, when she stabs him with the knife, you think, oh, he's definitely done there. And whoop. And then it's just, I can imagine like people being shocked by that. 
Right. And then like, what's it going to take to kill this guy? Right. And then this this is this is when we get to the the the, the big climax. You know, the, she gets the kids out of the way out of the way again, kind of have them lock themselves in in, a, in another bathroom or something. And then he keeps trying to get get at her. Uh she hides in a closet. He finds her in there. She stabs him with a hanger. Um and again, she thinks he's good. Uh but then in the background you see him kind of rise up like the Undertaker. Uh, with this, with exactly, the bro. <laughs> Which I have to wonder, and I know we're deviating a little bit into pro wrestling. If if you've ever watched pro wrestling, you know who the character of the Undertaker is. I have to wonder if that's where they stole it from because it's exactly like that. He just sits up very. It's like he's just lying, laying flat on his back, and then he does does like this perfect sit up right, and then looks looks over at her. Had to have been, bro. Had to have been. Uh, and then later, later. Uh, uh, and I also feel that uh, the the rest of the, the character Kane borrowed a lot from Michael Myers too, as far as his mannerisms go. Exactly, especially with the head tilts. Oh, right. <laughs> anyway, I back... think Kane, and then and then Kane did that more too when he first debuted, like in ninety seven, ninety eight. He was really good at the head tilts. Yeah, he did. He did those head tilts, and now he's unmasked. It doesn't matter, but you know, whatever. Doesn't he, matter exactly. Whenever, well, he still has the mask, but you know, whatever. You know, it's stupid. We're not going to get into that. But when he was when the character first came on, he had the full face mask. Uh, he he he, and he didn't. And he never talked. Uh, he 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 had a lot of Michael Myers mannerisms that had to have been directly lifted from this. In my, I mean, they had to have. Uh, so finally, he, he, he goes after her one more time. Uh, you know, Tommy and Lindsay manage to get out of the house. Uh, Michael is still attacking Lori. And as, as Tommy and Lindsay are running out of the house, that's when Luma sees, sees them running out. Because he had, he, had, he had finally left. And we skipped over this part. But he had left the Myers house because he realized that maybe he wasn't coming back. And he started searching for him. And then when he sees the kids running out of the house, he's like, he, "That's what that's his clue as to where Michael is." A little convenient, but whatever. He runs up to the house, runs up the stairs, and shoots Michael several times, and he falls over out the window and onto the grass, uh, saving the day for 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 Laurie. And then here's what it, this is this, this is what's kind of interesting about this film, is that the movie basically just ends a couple minutes after. There's no like, you know, a lot of horror movies like after the the killer dies, quote unquote. Then there's another scene after it where they're like, you know, the they're getting into the ambulance or you know they're they're kind of talking over what just happened. Things like it, it's not it just ends like the 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 you know he kind of checks on Loomis checks on Laurie. Laurie is in shock. She's crying and crying, and then she she says it was the boogeyman. And Loomis says it. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was. In fact, it was. That's a great dialogue right there. And then and then he be, he kills back out the window. And the body is missing. The music comes back up, and we get credits. Yep, like it just ends. It, it, it doesn't go into another. It doesn't. That's it. That's all you need to know. You don't find out. You don't get the moment of her getting loaded into the ambulance and talking to like, you know, talking about what really happened there. Who was he? Blah blah blah. None of that. It just ends. Like so, which happens her, in the zombie film. So <laughs> yeah, to her, there you go. To her, like to her, she's being attacked by this crazy dude in a mask, and we do get to see his face at one point after uh, after she stabs him in the eye um, with the uh, with the hanger, and you see him pull the mask off, and then that's a different actor than the guy who's been in, under the mask the whole time, by the way. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, and then he puts it back on again, and then uh, you know, to her, she's like, she's, this guy's trying to kill her. Then randomly, some old dude comes in and shoots him with a gun. <laughs> And then that's it. Like, they're like, 
And you, you're so, I mean, if you're in that much shock, you're probably like, I don't know who this guy is. But who the hell is this guy who just came in and saved me? But yeah, but not for nothing, though, I do like the ending cause we, because when you really think about it, like we've been saying pretty much the whole show, like by this point in the film, if you don't know already, like you've watched 99% of the film and you don't think this is not some regular human being, this is the personification of evil, then, I mean, the film beats you over the head with, it, with the ending because not only is after being shot multiple times and falling out a window, is he not dead, you know, I mean, what more could they say? This is not a human being. This is the shape. This is evil personified. And he could literally at this point be anywhere. If that doesn't send chills running down your spine, well, then I don't know what to tell you. No, it is absolutely the greatest, one of the greatest endings. I love this ending because it, it just, it because not only because it ends so abruptly, but because, like, you know, even before Loomis looks over, looks out the window, you know he's not going to be there when he looks. and there And he's not. He's gone. And and exactly. I love that because and you know I don't know if at the time they knew they were going to make sequels, but I mean in in 2016 you're obviously thinking even if even if you didn't know that if this movie came out in 2016 right for the first time you in in a world where everything is sequelized and rebooted and everything the second that movie is sick you saw that shot you'd be like oh okay we're gonna get another sequel in like a year right but. This wasn't the world of like horror sequels getting that many. Like I, I don't think I can think of a a horror movie sequel before this film. Uh, that you know, I mean, I'm sure there. I mean, obviously, you had the Universal monster movies had some sequels, but they were they were all that, that was a different kind of thing. But like where the monster came back, like after, like it wasn't a thing to kind of keep franchising these horror movies, right? So I wonder, like. It's such a great ballsy move to end the film on. Well, the killer's still out there, and he's. It's not really a happy ending because even though she's safe now, he's still out there. He's not. He, you know, he's the personification of evil. He's not going to stop. Exactly, and that just makes the whole film just absolutely chilling. If it wasn't chilling enough already, just thinking about that aspect of it, oof, great stuff. So one thing I, I forgot to mention in our, in our in our intro here, and I can't believe we we skipped over it, is the music. Uh, John Carpenter, uh, because this movie, and I'm was... not going to try to imitate it because I would I would ruin it for everyone. No, and we're going to play. By now, you should all know what it sounds like. You, you sh- everyone should know what it is, and and you know by this point, if you know, not a little inside baseball here. When I edit this thing, you probably gonna, you probably all would have already heard it by now anyway, because I probably opened the show with it anyway. So um, the that music written by Carpenter himself, because uh, he is kind of a his own he is a composer himself. Uh, and it was it's interesting because um the I mean the film was on such a tight budget I think that's why he did it because he kind of just wore a bunch of different hats to make things work and but it's such a perfect score for this film it, it absolutely it absolutely works uh for 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 the tone of this film and you see it and we we skipped over this you see it right from the opening shot with the credits and you see the jack-o'-lantern as the as the as the as the camera slowly, 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 slowly zooms in on the jack o' lantern, and we see the credits pop up over it, and you hear that music, you know it, it sets that mood so perfectly. Exactly, just one of the greatest film—not just horror film scores, but just film scores in general ever made. And what's even more fascinating is that Carpenter can't actually write music, write or read music. He knows how to play music, but he doesn't actually know how to read sheet music or anything. So when he composes stuff, he just kind of plays it. Which I think is kind of fascinating. Yeah, um, and if you if you if you like Carpenter's music, because he's I think he's composed 
most of the scores for a lot of his films. I know he, I know the one he definitely didn't do was the thing because that was an Ennio Morricone. Um, mm-hmm. But he he does do the scores for a lot of his films. Uh, and he actually came out with a CD, or not a CD, God, I'm old, I said CD, <laughs> he came up with an album uh, called uh, Lost Themes, I think it's called Lost Themes, I have it on my iPod, uh, let me just double check it here, let me... yep, that's what it's called, it's called Lost Themes, uh, and you can get it on iTunes, and it sounds like, if you listen through it, it sounds like the score from like an 80s horror movie that you never saw. Uh, and it, it's really great. I, I highly suggest it. I think it's like ten bucks on iTunes. I highly recommend it to anybody. Uh, it's a great, it's a great little album that he made. Um, and he he still tour like he tours like with like orchestras playing his music. Uh, I think he plays some of this stuff and he plays like the Halloween stuff and and everything else, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, and speaking of the thing, did you notice that? That Tommy Doyle was watching the 1951 The Thing. Yeah, I wanted on to TV. mention that. Yeah, The Thing from Another World, uh, the 1951 version of The Thing. Uh, yes. As, as we said earlier, he's a very big big fan of the uh, of the 50s horror movie, and it's funny that that you know it's funny that The Thing, the 1982 thing, is considered a remake of that film. Because have you ever seen that film? The original? Uh, no, I, I've seen the hit uh, Carpenter's the thing, but I haven't seen the original. No, the thing from Another World from 1951. If you've never seen it, the right. only the only similarity is that these people are, are are on an Arctic base. Other than that, it does, and and that there's an alien creature, right? But other than that, they the, don't really, they're not really, it's not really a remake because. In the film, the original film, it's not a shape-shifting alien like like the 1982 version. In the original film, it's like a plant-based organism that is going around killing people. And the guy and the monster looks more like Frankenstein's monster. He just looks like this big Frankenstein's monster-looking thing. And then it's kind of a conventional like monster movie. So it's interesting that it's the the 1982 version is considered a remake when it's it's not really the same thing other than an alien right. Arctic base. I mean, I guess that's exactly. enough, but uh, it's not really the same thing. Like, the, the 2011 remake is more of a remake than the 1982 remake is. Then that's not even a remake. It's a prequel. It's a prequel. Technically. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's that's what that movie's so weird because it's a prequel, but it's also a remake because it's still using the same beats as the original movie, but it takes place before the original. It's so weird. It, it, it's, it's, it, I would almost call it a shot-for-shot prequel, which is like the the weirdest like kind of combination ever because it, it basically is kind of shot for shot for the original film, but it happened before that film because remember when uh, Kurt Russell gets to the base, like some group had already been there and gone slaughtered. And that's supposed to be that group in the, in the 2011 film. But then you get this weird sequence where like they're all, they find like the flying saucer, the spaceship or something. And it gets kind of wacky, but for the most part, it is like kind of a shot for shot prequel. And that's, Something I don't think I'll ever see ever again. Well, they kind of did it. I mean, not shot for shot, but they kind of did it with Prometheus. But then they kind of like shied away from it, where it was like, "Oh yeah, this is the planet." Like you think it's the it's LV. Uh, what is it? Four one nine or something? What is it? LV. Yeah. Whatever the the planet from Alien. Um, but then four, you find is out it's four two six. Maybe it's four two six. I don't know. Regardless, uh, you th- but then like you find then like Ridley Scott later says no, it's not the same planet. But it's like, well, then why make the movie then? It, yeah, it's LV four two six, I think. 
then why make the movie? It's that that movie is so littered, littered with problems. But anyway, we went off on a tangent there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. The thing from another world. It, it's a very good movie. It's a very fun like 1950s sci-fi horror monster movie. But it's not the same thing as the 82 movie. The 82 movie is like worlds better. Um, but it's it's uh it's not the same thing at all. <laughs> um, what else did I want to talk about before uh, we kind of wrap up here? Um, oh, so whenever it came out, um, the, uh, the film was, they, they actually had to go, in 1980, the, I forget which TV, uh, which network bought, bought the rights for the, uh, for the TV rights for it. I think it was NBC. It was an NBC. And what I think is fascinating is that they... They didn't have enough time to fill two hours with commercials, so they went back and shot additional material. I think about ten or twelve minutes of additional material to fill in for the TV time. And they've since like released this footage, like added it into the movie, like for DVD releases and things like that. You can find the footage on pretty much almost any DVD release, uh, DVD or Blu-ray releases, extra features. I just know, I know it's been recut with the footage. It's basically, it's more or less like. There's only one really interesting scene. The other two are just kind of filler scenes. The one interesting scene is um, it, there's a scene of uh, Loomis uh, in, talking to like the psychiatric board who are you know who think that you know placing him in this minimum Michael Myers in this minimum security place is is fine. And Loomis is advising against them, and he kind of has like a, a, a an altercation with them. And then afterwards, he goes to Michael Myers' cell and he says, you know, well, you fooled them. But I know – basically he says, you fooled them, but I know what you really are or something like that. Uh, that's really the only interesting thing that they added. But I just think it's interesting because they had to go back and film extra footage for it. So they had to get all the actors to come back to shoot like a couple of scenes. And I think Jamie Lee Curtis had to have her like head in like a towel or something for one of the scenes because she had already cut her hair. So uh, I don't know. It's just an interesting little side note. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, it's a little hard to imagine nowadays in 2016 that they had to actually film extra stuff to fill two hours when you know they would have just filled it with commercials. Yeah, today, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it, it's frustrating. Like I think um, before AMC became like the Walking Dead channel and the Breaking Bad channel, and they would ju- they would actually show movies at night, you know. Uh, it was frustrating to watch that channel and watch movies because it was like every five minutes you'd get a commercial. It's like, yep. you get like, you know, you get like five minutes of commercials, you come back, you get one scene, and then they cut to commercials again. And, and just like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, that's the thing, so like, back in the day when uh, when people, we had the VCR, and we used to record the, the the movies off of, like, Channel 7 or Channel 5 when they'd give them, you know, it'd come with the commercials, which is why HBO became such a great thing, because no commercials on HBO, you got just the, the movie. Like it was supposed to be. So, you know, we I'm, we've recorded many, many films over the years over HBO. Um, the, those VHS is actually – because, see, now that I'm unpacking, like, from the old apartment, like in the attic and all that stuff to – I'm finding all these treasure troves of VHSs that I forgot that I had, you know, for all these movies. And it's kind of interesting. Like, half that stuff that's up there I've recorded off of HBO, or my uncle did, I should say. Oh, I did – we did that too. I mean, as I said before, I, when, I, uh, when I grew up uh, – uh, I grew up, you know, in the '80s, and you know, we had a VCR and and HBO, and you know, I recorded Back to the Future and Ghostbusters, and the, and I watched those movies literally every single day, and that's what ended up like teaching me the English language uh, as a, as a little immigrant <laughs> from the Dominican Republic. That's what taught me the English language, uh, and it, and uh, you know, and it was funny because you know, on VCRs, and this is something that 
kids nowadays don't know don't know anything about. <laughs> but um, you know, nowadays if some if you want to watch uh, a movie on HBO and you want to watch it over and over again, you just save it on your DVR, right? But back then, you had to actually set the you had to be there specifically in time to that you could program the VCR, but even but early VCRs you couldn't really program. You had to actually sit there and press the record button when it started, right? And um, what was great about that is that like on VHS tapes, you could set them for extra long play. So you could fit like six or seven hours on a, on a VHS tape. Mm -hmm. Now, the longer you set that setting for, uh, the The lower, the lower the quality is, but you could get three movies on there. You could get three, two hour movies on one of those tapes. Uh, and, uh, and I had so we had so many of, of those movies, like, I, I wish I, I knew what we did with all those, like, VHS tapes, because we had, like, hundreds, not hundreds, maybe, like, like, a hundred of those tapes sitting around, you used to see, like, Rambo slash Rocky slash Ghostbusters 2, or something like that, Bro. right, on one tape. There's, there's one VHS, and I remember this clearly, there's one VHS that's sitting in that attic at my old apartment that I now have to clean out. Where it's Face Off, Con Air, and freaking The Matrix on one tape. <laughs> and I think there's another one that has oh, the, the first two Austin Powers movies on them. Face Off, Con Air, and The Matrix. If you replace with The Matrix with The Rock, you'd have the perfect Nicolas Cage trilogy. Exactly. That is the that is the holy Nicolas Cage trilogy, man. <laughs> But yeah, man. It I, is. Yeah. So you, so you did it in the '90s. I did it in the '80s. So like, my, so it'd be great if I could go back and find those. And I'll be, I did it with wrestling too. I'd like, I'd record like you know WrestleMania six and SummerSlam on one tape or something. You know? Yes, yes. Uh, we did. I, I think with some of those events like Mania, we'd actually just do the, we just put the one event on there because it was so long. Like it was like three or four hours for for that show. Um, but I, I mean. Dude, I'm gonna start taking pictures of all those VHS tapes when I start going through them. I'm gonna start sending them to you, like you know, all these wacky combinations. It, my, I mean, if those tapes still exist in my house, they'd be in Pennsylvania, which is, you know, so I, I'm not going back to that house until at least Christmas time. But if when I'm there, I'm gonna see if they're still around because if my mom hasn't thrown them away, I want to see if they're still around because I would love to see what wacky combinations of videotapes that they were that they were on there because. Because that would just be hilarious. Because I'm serious. It was like some weird combinations of like two movies per tape and stuff. Uh, no, but and, and then the weirdest films would be only like there'd be a tape where it'd have like just one film, but it'd be like the oddest choice to just have like for a single tape. Like, for example, there's a tape in that attic that just has House Party. That's it. <laughs> Nothing else. There's a tape just in House the, Party. There's a tape that just had the movie Cobra. There's a tape that just has basic instincts on it. That's oh, it. Oh man, basic instincts is not a bad movie though. <laughs> I know, but I'm just saying. Like, oh you man, you could have fit something else. It's, like, it's not that great. Where it just I have, deserves I, a tape I, by I just have to freaking no. house party, bro. Has its tape. By it, if you had, if you had basic instinct taped off of cable, I'm going to, I'm going to make a guess that during a certain scene. All of a sudden, you're going to see really bad track lines on a certain scene because someone paused it over and over again. Am I right on that? I'm about to just start actually watching that because um, <laughs> I have a I, the VCR I have here still works. So I'm about to when I'm going to start bringing these tapes or plugging it in, seeing what actually what versions of these films I actually have. <laughs> uh, you know, VHS was such a crappy format, but I have such nostalgia for VHS. Me too, man. Because because it was. 
it was all I knew for like ten years, right? Like, it, I, not even that, more than that, probably like fifteen years, because I think I got a DVD player in two thousand. Yeah, you know what? I got a DVD player in two thousand when everyone else got a DVD player because The Matrix came out on DVD, and I was like, I gotta watch this in high def or what passed for high def in the year two thousand. So like, I needed to. I couldn't. I couldn't watch that on a tape. I had to watch all the beautiful colors on a DVD, right? And that's that's my first DVD I bought was The Matrix, and that's when I first got a DVD player. So from like eighty five to two thousand, it was just VHS all the way. So that's like a good fifteen years of my life that like VHS was was my like was the format. You know, there's no other format. There was Laserdisc, but nobody had Laserdisc, right? But VHS was the format, and so I have a lot of nostalgia for it, even though it's unwatchable. It's like quality wise, it's unwatchable now. Me too, but there's like so many tapes that have like three, like three different films on them. Like, so I think one of them even has four because they were probably like ninety minute films, you know. So I'm pretty, I'm gonna, I'm excited. Like, and when I go on my day off back to the to the other house and start unpacking this stuff, I'm gonna start sending you pictures of like wacky combinations. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, I will, you know what? Send them to me, and then I will post them on the Essential Films uh, uh, Facebook page. Awesome, man! That's gonna be great. That's going to be great, man. I'm excited now. Um, and, and, you know, when you move, like, you hate having to pack all that crap up. But now I'm excited. <laughs> all right. Uh, let, let's finish up some Halloween here. Let's let's talk a little bit about the legacy here. Um, upon its release, um, it was pretty much panned by a lot of critics. It had a, an enormous financial success. It was made for $300,000, as we said before. It ended up making seven, $70 million worldwide, which in $70 million nowadays doesn't sound like a lot. But if you adjust it for inflation, it, it's about $250 million, which is a very impressive number for a movie that only cost 300000 So that was, uh, it was a huge financial success. Obviously, it spawned a lot of sequels. Um, but critics did not seem to like it. Um, although our boy Roger Ebert did like it. Uh, but a lot of people called it a psycho ripoff. Um, the yeah, I think Pauline Kael was especially kind yeah, of Pauline Kael mean with this, like saying you know that like this guy has too much time on his hands to be watching nothing but Alfred Hitchcock, you know, and all these other old movies where he basically just ripped them off. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what she said. Yeah, um, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of uh, f- there's a lot of feminist criticism going on for this movie because a lot of feminists consider the movie as misogynist, but other feminists. I was going to bring that it- up to you, bro. But other feminists. I was going to say, like, when you mentioned with Loomis kind of saving the day, you're like, I bet you that pissed off a lot of feminists it, seeing that. It did, but uh, some other feminists consider the film as a. Uh, as a positive feminine role, because even though Loomis does save the day in that film, it does start the final girl that this film kind of did start the final girl, uh, trend where every horror movie from then on had a, had a girl surviving at the end. So some feminists kind of see that as a positive, even though Loomis did save her, it did start the final girl trend. So it, it does kind of get credit for that. Uh, cause some, cause I guess some feminist like authors kind of see that as a good thing. Um, because up until that point, you know, women are, were depicted as, like, victims that, you know, that can't save themselves. They need a guy to save them, which, again, Loomis does. But Loomis isn't exactly this masculine hero. He's just some guy, right? And, but up until that point, she was surviving on her own. And she was, she was taking the fight to Michael Myers. So it's, it's an interesting back and forth. Uh, I'm sure there's been many, 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 many articles and think pieces written on, written on it. Um, right now, Carpenter, uh, 
he's got a he's got a he's got a special take on the whole final girl thing. And this is what he's and now this is one of those things where like sometimes what the author intends isn't what the audience takes away, and neither one of them is really wrong. But it just wants you know sometimes things take life on their own. And this I'm gonna read the quote because I think it's funny. Uh, Carpenter says on the final girl morality thing, he says. The one girl who is most sexually uptight just keeps stabbing this guy with a long knife. She's the most sexually frustrated. She's the one that killed him. She's the one that's killed him. Not because she's a virgin, but because she all that sexually repressed energy starts coming out. She uses all those phallic symbols on the guy. I think that's kind of a good way. That's a funny way to look at it. That's the definition of trolling right there. Because, I mean, it, it's kind of funny when you think about it because, you know, you make this film... Just a typical slasher film. There's no, like, hidden symbolism or meaning behind it. And to have, like, you know, these intellectuals kind of say, oh, you know, this is symbolic of this, this is symbolic of that. You know, it's, you know, saying that, you know, if you're promiscuous or you're immoral, you know, this is what what could happen to you, you know. And he's just laughing. this off like, I just made a slasher film, you know. So he kind of, like, took that whole kind of symbolism part of it and kind of just made fun of them by saying, oh, you know, she's the most sexually repressed character in the movie. Of course he stabbed, he stabbed him repeatedly with a long knife, you know, the phallic symbol. So, you know, this is that's just Carpenter being a troll right there, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, so the, the film went on to uh, uh, create seven different sequels uh, and a reboot and a sequel to the reboot. Um, Halloween two came about several years later. It was the first. It was the first time a sequel could kind of yeah, a horror movie franchise had kind of been sequelized. That was the last time Carpenter had a lot of uh, direct involvement with the franchise. Uh, he wrote the film, but he did not direct it. Um, he then went on to, and that was a continuation of the Michael Myers storyline. He did go on to produce Halloween three, uh, but as we all know, that is not a Michael Myers movie, and it ended up really pissing off a lot of Michael Myers fans who went into that movie thinking, I mean, in the day, in the age of the internet, this couldn't have happened. Everyone would have known going into it that it was not a Michael Myers movie. But back right. in 1982, I believe, is when the uh, season of The Witch came out. Uh, nobody knew that. They just knew it was another Halloween movie. And they were like, wait, where's Michael Myers? And actually, the first time I saw Halloween 3, halfway through the movie, I'm like, okay, seriously, where's Michael Myers? And like, I, I, and I watched it on tape, right? So like, I didn't know that he wasn't in the movie. And then I was just like, okay, I guess this is just not going to have Michael Myers in it. <laughs> um, so I was one of those people. I wasn't really annoyed by it, but I was really confused. Like, and th- it took me about halfway through the movie. I'm like, I guess it's just not a Michael Myers movie. So <laughs> I was so confused. Um, then by Halloween four, they did they did go back to Michael Myers and they continued him. Uh, he continued to be the main villain of the of the films throughout the uh, through Halloween four, five, six, H two O, and Resurrection, and then the reboots in oh uh, seven. Um, you know, I read that they briefly thought about for Resurrection that they weren't going to have Michael Myers in it, but that idea got shot down because they just got reminded of Halloween three. <laughs> And they kind of put the kibosh on that idea. But a resurrection for a, for a second, I'll say, they did think about not having Michael Myers in that last one. Because the, the original idea for Halloween, the movie, was supposed to be kind of like a, a, an anthology series. Kind of like, right, like, kind of like American like, Horror Story. Yeah, I was about to say, kind of like American Horror Story, where each thing was going to be its own thing. Now, they did decide to do another Michael Myers story in two because well, they wanted to keep telling that one specific story. They felt that there was still some juice left in that. But when they went with three, it was like, okay, now we're going to just do a new thing. Like, people just, it just backlashed so spectacularly. And the thing is, if you watch that film now, it, it is really cheesy. 
but it's really kind of a lot of fun. So it's it's you know it's starting to kind of the internet starting to come come and come back and embrace that film now, um, which I think which I find kind of interesting. Um, also, yeah. Halloween did kind of start re vitalized the, the slasher craze now that before then uh, there have been other slasher movies like Black Christmas like you mentioned earlier, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and of course Psycho mm-hmm. um, but this really jump started it and then soon after Halloween we got Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Prom Night, Maniac, Child's Play Sleepaway Camp, countless other you know forgettable movies uh, but this really really started the trend uh, and this is kind of this kind of jump started Carpenter's career uh, it definitely jump-started Jamie Lee Curtis's career. She first started doing more tour stuff with Prom Night and The Fog, but then in Trading Places, whenever she like kind of made it really big by kind of getting out of horror. Yeah. And interestingly enough, as they say in the movie Scream, she never shows her breasts until Trading Places, which is a comedy. <laughs> right? <laughs> and Trading Places is a great movie. It is. Um, and that's about it. It's, oh, I didn't want to mention this because I sent this to you on uh, on Facebook. <laughs> the nineteen eighty three, just like with Jaws. In nineteen eighty three, there was an Atari twenty six hundred video game uh, produced by Wizard Video. Now you can go on YouTube if you just put in Halloween Atari on YouTube. You can find footage of this game, and it looks terrible. Uh, the char- none of the characters in the game are named. The killer isn't named, and uh, interestingly enough, it actually has more gore than the actual movie it's based on because uh, <laughs> whenever the killer catches up to you, you're, they ch- he chops off your head and you see little blood things come out. <laughs> I hilarious. read, bro, bro. I read that the the budget for that game was like, I mean, you could tell, but it, I mean, you got to give it credit. It's an Atari game, but even it, it still looks looks bad even by Atari standards. It does have the and music read, though. I it does have the music like the the pixelated you know eight bit version of it, but I read that the budget for that game was so low that for some of the cartridges, bro, they didn't even put like an actual like little, you know how like the cartridges had like the picture and it says Halloween or like the title of the game on it. Yeah, some of those cartridges didn't even have like that picture. It just had a piece of tape that said Halloween on it. That's it. Nothing else. <laughs> Talk about <laughs> you think it was like some bootleg thing off of like a. Chinese like street corner you bought, you know. <laughs> Literally, this like I read it, said, it had just a piece of tape and it said Halloween on it. And that's it, nothing else. Oh, the man. whole scary picture of a of a jack o' lantern, nothing like that. Yeah, I, I would. I, 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 I the game looks terrible. I really suggest you folks go to YouTube, type in Halloween Atari, and you'll see what we're talking about. The that just. It just it looked terrible. It looked like a terrible game. Um, so that that'll close the book on Halloween, unless you have anything else to talk about with with the movie. Oh no, I think we pretty much covered it head to toe here. It was yeah, a great it, film, absolute essential viewing for everybody, especially if you're into horror. Like if you're into horror, like this should have been like the first movie you, you watched because it pioneered just so much in terms of the genre. And if you're and if you're kind of a big scaredy cat, you don't have to worry about it. It's not. It, it does have some sca- jump scares. It has some really very effective jump scares. Not a lot of gore. Not a lot of blood. It's actually very light on blood and gore. Some of the deaths are a little violent, but again, you don't actually see blood and gore in them. It's just it's a violent it's violent imagery for sure. But it's yeah. if, if it's if you are the kind of person that gets scared easily at horror movies, this is kind of a good kind of soft entry into it. 
and th- that's by no, that by no means is a is a criticism of the film. It's it's, but, it's it kind of like swimming in the shallow pools. Yeah, but You're but not it is, going too deep yet. But because of the fact that it is you know excellently like you know very well directed, very well crafted, an iconic film that restarted a you know a, a trend in Hollywood. This film is absolutely essential viewing. Yep. Do you remember that article that came out? I think maybe it was like two or three years ago. I, I don't know if I shared it on Facebook or if you shared it or somebody shared it where, like, somebody had made, like, the current, like, crop of teenagers of this generation watch Halloween and they said it sucked because it wasn't scary. No, I did not Do you see remember that. that? No. I did see an article. I didn't see that article, but I saw another article from, like, of all things. It was, like, some um, some writer for, like, a women's magazine Saying that, like you know, she's starting. It was like last last year, I think. It's like she's starting to watch. You know, she's gonna watch horror for Halloween, and she she picked like a bunch of the the a bunch of uh, uh famous Halloween movies or famous horror movies to see, like to kind of. And she's like a big scaredy cat, I guess. And I, this was one of them. I I think she this was one of the ones she said she was not too scared by. Um, I think I think she really was disturbed by The Exorcist, which was on her list, and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was on her list. But I think this one she did, she was okay with. She 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 was able to handle this one. But uh, if teenagers think this sucks, I mean they don't have any they don't have any you know. I could have sworn we talked about it on Facebook. Somebody, one of us must have shared. It. Maybe it was like Danny or one of them that shared it, and then we cut. Kind of, it was a whole like thread about it, kind mm-hmm. of insulting the youth of today. <laughs> well. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you compare it to like modern horror movies, like it, the modern horror movies certainly show more and are do more jump scares, but they're just, but I mean, we've been on this show, we've talked about it on this show and on Force Perspective how modern horror movies abuse the jump scare and they use it incorrectly. So I, I think Halloween uses the jump scare appropriately. Yeah, adapt most definitely. Um, so as far as uh, recommendations go uh, on this film. Uh, I would recommend if you enjoyed this film, or, or, or if you will watch this film. I would also recommend Halloween Two. Uh, it's not as good at all. It's not as good by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a decent continuation of the story. Um, Halloween Three, no Michael Myers, but it's kind of fun and cheesy in its own way. Like it's really cheesy, but it's kind of fun. Like it really is a lot of fun to watch that movie. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth, the two most the two major movies that were kind of Helped by the slasher craze. I would say the, the original two of those films. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which predated Halloween, but a classic uh, a classic uh, slasher film. And um, one from the 90s, just because it kind of fits with slasher theme, Scream. I think Scream is an excellent slasher movie. Oh, absolutely. Great. I, Scream is one of my favorite horror films ever. Ever. You want to add any recommendations to that list? Um. Not really. I mean, you had a, a pretty good list there. Not a pretty good list. You had a great list, actually. That what if you if you can get through Halloween? Like if you're like a newbie to horror, like you you're kind of too scared to try it, and you kind of want to like like we said, kind of swim in the shallow pool. Halloween's a great place to start because it did innovate a lot of the future horror films. But you know, after that, like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the Thirteenth, uh, Scream. You know, if you want to even go back to like you know Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know. Which, Definitely, because those are those are all, all great films. Absolutely. Um, so, where can you watch it? It's uh, it's available for digital rental and purchase on Amazon, iTunes, and YouTube. Uh, on Netflix, it's not streaming, but you can rent it on the disc only service, and it is available uh, pretty widely available in many different many different versions 
different anniversary versions on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, my I have the box set from Scream Factory uh, that has all ten nice. films in it. Uh, I've only seen three of those films, <laughs> even though I bought <laughs> the whole box set. Um, but uh, it, the 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 Scream Factory release is actually pretty nice uh, as far as the transfer goes. It's pretty light on special features, but the the transfer is really nice. Oh man, I can't wait to see. I I do have the one that I do own. It's just the uh, okay. Actually, I have a couple. I have the 35th anniversary Blu-ray that came in the Digibook, which is the one that I watched last night. Um, great. I love the transfer. Absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous transfer. Everybody pick that version up. If you just want to get this one film, get that version because I think it is the definitive version as far as like quality-wise. And I also have the uh, I have Halloween 2 from uh, Screen Factory. So those are the only two I have. I don't have any of the other ones. Because I do want to get H2O because I kind of want to have like that trilogy together because it is part of the same thread. Because H2O ignores Halloween 4, Halloween 5, Halloween 6. Um, so it's kind of nice to have like the whole like the Laurie Strude trilogy kind of together. But I've read that the transfer that's out now for H2O is like so bad that mm. I don't want to even spend like the $6 for it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that bad. Yeah. Um,. Okay, so now we. But, find... uh, but hopefully they do. Re- I think they remastered it for that for that Screen Factory box set. But like I'm hope I'm still waiting for the single disc release, like the of that transfer. All right, so now that we've talked about Halloween, it's time to find out what our next movie will be. Uh, as I said before, our, on our last show, we we pre picked Halloween ahead of time because it, it would just fit with Halloween. You know, uh, the Halloween season. Uh, I mean, obviously it's in the name, so we we pre-picked that one. Now we are going back to the random movie generator. So the Ramgen, all right. So let us see the Ramgen. What the random movie generator picks for us this week? I'm gonna trademark Ramgen to call it for short. <laughs> all right, here we go. Fired it up. Let's see what we got. Uh, oh, okay. Uh well this is um this is a big one. This is a big one. Um our next movie will be the epic and epically long Gone with the Wind. Oh dude, really? You're going to make me sit through four and a half hours <laughs> twice over. You don't have to watch oh, it twice, the... just watch it once, man. <laughs> This one, oh, we but... might need a little. Per- we might need some prep time for this one. It might be a little bit longer between our next show because uh, this is a long movie. It's four hours. Four hours. So, dude, they they showed this. Uh, they showed it on uh, public television. I think maybe a few months ago, and I think they started it at I think midnight, and it ended like at four forty-five at night. That sounds about right. Because they took like little breaks in between, like to do like fundraising. You know how the public television. Oh yeah, totally. They do, like the breaks for fundraisers, like. You know, call this number and donate twenty five dollars. You'll get this tote bag. You know, so because of that, it ended like around like four forty five, five o'clock in the morning. And I think that was on Christmas. No, actually, might have been on Christmas, Christmas, ah. Christmas night that they did that. And I, I stayed up because you know we're Hispanics. We stay up all night on Christmas. So <laughs> I stayed up from midnight till five a.m. watching Gone with the Wind, bro. Like legit. No, it's a great movie. There's nothing else on. It's a it's a great movie, but it's long. So here's what I would suggest: yeah. watch it in parts, <laughs> because <laughs> because it it does. It, it's I mean, there's a, I think there's an intermission at one point, so maybe just stop at the intermission, and then That's pick it true. up the next day. You know, 
because it is a long exactly. movie. So that'll be the next movie. Uh, pro- again, it probably will be a little bit longer in between shows just because this movie is so long. And there's going to be a lot more prep to do on this one because this movie has a lot of history. And a lot. I mean, it will probably end up being our longest show, to be honest, because there's a lot of history behind the movie, a lot of bat production stuff. The movie itself, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, but I mean, you can't do a show about the essential films and not talk about Gone with the Wind. So uh, that's the next movie, Gone with the Wind. But you know what? In the end, frankly, Adolfo, I, I don't give a damn. Oh, I knew that was coming. <laughs> All right, so before we take off, I, I do like to do this little tradition I've been doing is talk about uh, what came out this week in history. And this is a really, this is a really good week for uh, film history. Um, this week in film history in 1928, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Have you ever seen that film? I have not, but I've heard very good things about it. It's a it. fantastic film. It's on Criterion, but not on Blu-ray yet. It's still on the, on the old packaging on DVD, but it's not out of the print. The DVD packaging. Yeah, it's not out like of print. Like with the... Uh... I wait. Which one? Like RoboCop. I have the old Criterion DVD of it, but they haven't. I don't think they have the rights to it anymore. So yeah, no they don't have the rights to it anymore. So it's out of print. But Passion of Joan of Arc is not out of print, so you actually can pick it up for a decent price. Uh, it's an excellent. It's an excellent movie. Um, also in 1941, uh, Dumbo was released, as well as nice. as well as the uh, the film that stole the Academy Award from Citizen Kane. How green was my valley? Um, Boo! It's it's a decent movie. It really is. It's just not as good as Citizen Kane. Uh, I always have to throw that in because I've seen it and it's not bad. Um, nineteen forty six. The but fr- best picture good. That no, yeah, no, that, not best picture good. You're right, not best picture good. Uh, nineteen forty six was uh, the French version of Beauty and the Beast, also on Criterion. That's a beautiful, which I which I own. That's a beautiful, great movie. film. Uh, nineteen sixty. Uh, we just talked about this movie on uh, the uh, on a, on a recent episode of Force Perspective. The Magnificent Seven came out. Woo! 1962, the original Manchurian Candidate came out, um, which I own on Criterion Blu-ray. It's a great, which I still haven't watched yet, but I am getting around to it. In I've 19... seen the movie before, but not the Criterion. Uh, I have not. I don't. I do not. That's one of the ones I want to buy. I have not gotten to buying that one. I've seen that movie at least two or three times. Uh, it's a great film, but I have not watched that film yet. Or I've not watched the Criterion version yet. Uh, in 1967, uh, we had two classic movies, Le Samurai, which is a great uh, Jean-Pierre Melville film, as well as Wait Until Dark, which is a great little thriller starring Audrey Hepburn, uh, where I'm not sure if you've seen this one, but it's, she's, she's blind, and some, it's, it's almost kind of like the movie Don't Breathe, but she's the actual victim here. She's blind, and there are some robbers trying to break into her house. And she's kind of fighting them off in the dark. It's pretty good. Oh, nice. Uh, oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, Wait Until Dark. It's a great film. Uh, and it has a really fantastic jump scare at the end. Uh, it's not a horror movie, really. It's a thriller. But it has a fantastic jump scare at the end. Uh, 1969, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, I love that film. Which um, I own. And, uh, and as we mentioned earlier, 1978, Halloween came out this week. And 1984... I'll be back. The Terminator was released in theaters. Yes. Uh, in 1992, the first Quentin Tarantino movie to hit theaters, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, in 1998, American History X, um, which have, uh, which is a fantastic film. It's very underrated, and apparently mm-hmm. Edward Norton's a nightmare to work with, uh, as, he, <laughs> as he took away control from the director on that film, apparently. Um, in 1999, Being John Malkovich, which is a great, wacky, wacky movie. 
Uh, and the last film that I think is worth talking about here is uh, in the year 2000, the greatest anti-drug film I've ever seen, Requiem for a Dream, was released. Nice. <laughs> Uh, seriously, awesome. I will never, ever, 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 ever do heroin because of that movie. Not that I was really ever wanting to, but after that movie, if anybody ever offered me any, I'd be like, no, I'm good. I'm no, good. thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know how – there's a famous scene at the end that I always, that I always think about at this with Jennifer Connelly involving objects and people chanting at her. If you've seen <laughs> the movie, you know what I'm talking about, and I'm just going to leave it there. All right, uh, that'll do it for us. Uh, please visit EssentialFilmsPodcast.com. Uh, right now, I am doing a countdown to the 100 Essential Horror Films. We are halfway through the countdown. I'm posting it up in parts. Uh, we are about halfway through the list now. Uh, by the end of the month, before Halloween hits itself, before the 31st itself, all 100 films will be up there. Uh, you have contributed to this list. Uh, Geekdom 101 has uh, contributed to the list. Mr. Eddie has contributed to the list. A bunch of other different podcasts, including the uh, podcast Good Times, uh, Great Movies, and Film Spotting. Those guys have all contributed. So it's it's including other bloggers and podcasters and writers. This is gonna, this is a very comprehensive list. I'm very excited about putting it together. Uh, right now, you can check out uh, all the all the ones that I've counted down so far and on the 31st uh, all 100 should be named um you should also ch- uh if you have any questions please email me at essentialfilmspodcast at gmail.com and uh, please like the essential films on facebook and follow at essential films on twitter and please like rate and review and subscribe to the show on itunes and also before i hand it off to mark my friend mark here please listen to our other show force perspective uh, we recently talked about uh, all the big summer movies. Uh, our last two episodes, we talked about Ghostbusters, Finding Dory, Don't Breathe, Star Trek Beyond, Sausage Party. And we also kind of went into how this summer was kind of a disappointment for movies. Yeah, we, we get into all that on that episode of Force Perspective, which is episode 83. By the time this drops, I think episode 84 will be up, okay. which is actually kind of alluded to earlier. We'll be talking about Magnificent Seven. We'll be talking about uh, Sully and all the other films that kind of came out, like kind of in the aftermath of the summer coming to September, October, you know, kind of the fall season of films where you start getting more prestige pictures. So definitely, definitely check out that episode. And uh, speaking of Sully, did you see the uh, Saturday Night Live skit with Tom Hanks and Alec Baldwin? Oh, that was great. Oh, that was great. That Tom Hanks episode was so good. Every, I, Probably I, the best episode they've had so far. I, I, I mean, did not... and the Lin-Manuel Miranda one was all right, but this one was just – every other sketch was, was gold. I did not watch it live, but I kept, every time – the next day and that Monday after, they kept putting up different clips from it uh, of the different segments. That was – the Sully clip was hilarious. David Pumpkin's absolutely amazing. The, uh, the suit is sold out everywhere. It's kind of depressing. So I kind of wanted to buy it now. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> That's a skit. Listen, okay. That's a skit that without Tom Hanks, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. Absolutely. Like, you're absolutely Tom right. Hanks has to be David Pumpkins or it does. it's just it's stupid. Um, he makes it work. Uh, where he played the, uh, the average Trump voter on Black Jeopardy was pretty funny. That um, was good, yeah. And, uh, oh, was, oh, and the, the debate, the 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 third debate. The, he was Chris uh, Wallace. Yeah. Uh, my be- the the best part of that is whenever Alec Baldwin, as Donald Trump says that, and I've got the support of the best Baldwin brother, Stephen Baldwin. Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> Way to troll your own brother, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's a great episode. I, I would recommend that watching that one, that episode too. It's really funny. Uh, but where can we find you? Where can we find Force Perspective? All right, so if you want to email Force Perspective, you can email uh, 
FPM. Well, oh my god, I can't even remember my my own email. It's fpmpodcast at gmail dot com, or you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow the show actually. You can follow it at fp movie podcast, or you can follow me specifically on Twitter at sportsguy five one five. All right. So that'll about do it for us this week. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, please have a safe and happy Halloween. And until next time, when we watch Gone with the Wind, we will see you next time. Thank you very much, folks. Thank you.